When we're present for each other, we put our devices away. That's activating our side sensory circuits. And the more that we can repeat these states of presence, the more we build and that becomes a trait. And that in turn can become a new baseline way of being for ourselves. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am delighted to be sitting down with Caroline Welsh today and talking all things around mindful living and how we really bring heart and purpose awareness into our day-to-day lives. Caroline is the CEO and co-founder with Dr. Dan Siegel of the Mindset Institute in Santa Monica, California. A graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School with a master's degree from the University of South California, she started her career in law as a corporate litigator. Caroline has served as a Los Angeles country court-appointed mediator, as well as in-house counsel at MGM Studios and Spelling Entertainment Group. She began her mindfulness practice 40 years ago while working in Japan as an English teacher. In March 2020, Caroline's book, The Gift of Presence, A Mindfulness Guide for Women, was released. And to me, this book itself has felt like the gift. She manages to seamlessly bring together the academic world, you know, an understanding of evidence-based practice around mindfulness and meditation with this beautifully flexible, compassionate understanding of what it's like to be a woman, to be a mother, to be a being in this busy world where we have expectations in a sense that maybe we are never quite doing enough. In writing this book, Caroline interviewed hundreds of women, as well as integrating her own lived experience, her own story. So I think that you might find this book and certainly this interview really connects you and normalizes the experience, the challenges that we go through in navigating this busy world and the expectations we put on ourselves. In this conversation, Caroline also talks about anti-racism and anti-sexism and how mindfulness can actually support us in becoming more effective allies through this present awareness of what's happening, what's showing up, and how we hold space that's necessary to continue these conversations towards working for a more just future. Caroline is really passionate about this work as well as the work that she does providing lectures and workshops to enhance well-being in our personal and professional lives. She and her husband, Dan, live in Santa Monica with their dog, Charlie, and have two adult children. But without further ado, let me introduce you now to Caroline herself. Welcome. 
Welcome, Caroline, to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am so delighted to be with you here today. So thank you for creating the space to come and have a conversation around presence, purpose, pivoting, pacing. And we're going to also be talking about, you know, the importance of anti-racist work, anti-sexist um, work, and all of the things that are in your heart and your sphere right now. So it'll be a big conversation. Thank you, Caitlin. It's my pleasure to be here today. Would you mind just to get things started, sharing a little bit with listeners about, you know, what your journey is that has brought you here and to, you know, linking together all of these important areas that really, you know, mindfulness underpins it. So what sort of brought us here and what brought mindfulness to your heart and to really your sphere of awareness, importance, and perhaps purpose? (laughs) That's a big question with many, many questions in it. So thank you for that. As with so many journeys, when you think journey, you think about maybe a map or a path. But as I believe it was Steve Jobs who said, it's only when you look back that you can connect the dots. And I would say that that is very true for my own life. And when I think about tracing my journey for mindfulness, a year or two ago, I might have said, I believe it began when I was an English teacher in Japan. That's when I was first introduced to a formal meditation practice. And some of my students, I was in Hiroshima, Japan, and that is the headquarters of Mazda. So some of my engineering students told me that they were going to a local temple on weekends to meditate. And that in fact, their whole company uh, often took groups of employees there to meditate. And so they invited me to come along, which I did. And then I went um, almost weekly. And that was my introduction to a formal meditation practice and to mindful awareness. And and when you went and you had this experience, because your background, you know, perhaps was that you grew up rurally, you know, you'd really kind of bucked the trend kind of in all the travel you were doing. Was that something that seemed welcoming to begin with? Or was that something that you had to work to establish as a safe place and, you know, an a practice of importance for you? What was the original experience like just because some listeners might not have meditated before and this might be very new to them? Exactly. Well, there are, again, a few uh, questions in one thing there and in, in your observation. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm, but um, I was always very curious about other parts of the world. And so when I went to Japan, I was interested in taking in anything that I could there from the Ikebana flower arranging to the tea ceremony, to playing the koto, to learning the language, to learning to meditate. And so it all fit in my larger interest to take in, expand, learn, and observe. The, um, the thing that I um, 
realized later though, because as I said, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I might've said that was the formal beginning of my practice. But in reflecting more deeply recently, I think, I think my practice, my being aware, my being present started when I was a child on a dairy farm. I can remember so clearly the smells of the freshly cut hay, the smells of the, um, you know, the, um, the cows out in the pasture and, you know, chewing their cud. I mean, there's a smell that goes with that. And I can remember my job on the farm was to collect the eggs every day from the hens in the hen house. I can remember collecting them, getting them out of the nest and sometimes they'd be warm. So if you think about mindfulness as being aware in the moment for what's going on without judgment and paying attention, a particular kind of attention to use the definition of John Kabat-Zinn, then living on a dairy farm and being in touch somatically with what's going on is mindfulness. And that's one of the things I tried to bring to life in my book, because I think sometimes when I would start my interviews, and as I uh, mentioned in the book, I interviewed over 100 women from around the world. And not infrequently, the interviewee would say, oh, just put your pen away. I am the most unmindful person you know. And somehow, mindfulness got a reputation that it was a little bit maybe unattainable, or it's something that happens in a structure on a zabuton or a chair and or a cushion. And what I tried to do in the book is make really clear that the informal mindfulness practices are as important as the formal. That's really beautiful. And it's, it's really nice for me to hear how, you know, when you said you look back and then you connect the dots that actually this practice really started as a child. And, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I am, I have a young child right now and, and when she's present with something, she's present, you know, she might shift attention or focus, but there is this, this real, integration into the moment in life, a real awareness of it. And that's interesting that you recall, you know, touching the warm eggs, the smell of the cows chewing the cud, and even that curiosity that you mentioned when you were in Japan, that, that sure, you might have had a practice where you were really introduced to mindfulness, or maybe the more formal structured practices that we often associate with it. But the tea ceremonies or the flower arranging, I believe that might have been mindful practices as well, where you said somatically, like using your hands, being there and having it felt that it's really weaved through everything you've been doing, Carolyn. Absolutely. And it, it weaves through everything that all of us do every day. Uh, and we need only to bring our attention to it. 
And how powerful this idea of it being able to be something that we are doing in our lives, because what I think, you know, the gift of presence, your beautiful book really highlights is that it's not that we need to add another thing to our to-do list, that it's something that can be integrated. So, you know, you described mindfulness as something that's done and can be done as as we're living. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about that and how it really links to this, this concept of presence, because they're a little bit perhaps interchangeable. Yes, I think um, as you as you're suggesting, we can integrate mindfulness into our lives. It's not above and beyond or on top of. And what I find is effective when I'm teaching in a workshop, I want my students to always leave with a sustainable mindful awareness practice plan. So a lot of us can commit to meditate for one day. I mean, 12 minutes a day, which is the latest um, uh, research-based amount of time that hopefully we can manage and that will yield benefit to us. But the question becomes, over time, how can you sustain it? And one thing we know also from the research is that a daily practice is really important. So even if it might be less than uh, the 12 minutes a day, it's better to at least do something than to miss a day. So the sustainability part of it um, becomes really important. And what I have heard in my workshops are some amazing ways to make sure it becomes a part of one's life. One woman, for example, has a pet lizard named Ruby, and she has to turn, I don't, I'm not going to get this right, but those who have lizards will get it. She has to turn the light on in the tank every morning and off every night, and it might be the opposite. But the point is that this is something she does every day. She has to take care of Ruby and turn the light on and off. Well, that's a trigger for her to take a few minutes for herself. And in this way, she's stapling it or integrating it into something she already does. Other women have told me that when they drop their, um, their kids off at the preschool or the school, that's when they take that extra few minutes at that time, because they take them to school every day for themselves, whether it's, you know, before their next commitment, whether it's going to their offices or going back to their homes, whatever that is, it's really the sustainability is there because we all have routines that we always do. We all don't want to add more to the to-do list that we increasingly, we ignore those lists. I have so many, I can't even find them when I really would like to see where I'm at on my list. But it's it's good if we can attach it to something. That's a really important trick, isn't it? The, this attaching that, and I like the word stapling. <laughs> it sounds yes, so very it's very official. visual, yeah. right. And it official, is. Yes. 
Um, and I, I guess with that, so this idea of stapling it to something we're doing, probably listeners right now are kind of doing something perhaps while they're listening to the podcast. What a beautiful idea to think, oh, well, maybe, you know, if I listen to a podcast when I turn it off or before I turn it on, that might be a time. Or if there's something else in life that is happening every single day, that's really where we want to, to staple it because the dailiness, the regularity is, is is vital by the sounds that that's the importance, not so much the duration as the regularity and that being part of our, our life. Yes, exactly. And not to um, underplay the, the studies that we know, the, uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the work of Dr. Amishi Jha at the University of Miami, and her most recent work tells us that 12 minutes a day is, is important. Um, we, what we don't know is, can we divide that into six pieces? and have it two minutes. We don't know that. I mean, there are um, research centers, including the University of Wisconsin and Richie Davidson's lab. They're looking into questions like this, but we do have some, you know, answers now that we can be confident in. I think that's also important because Sure, a couple minutes will be easier probably for those of us who are anchoring it to something else in our day, stapling it in. But also 12 minutes is different than maybe the visual we have of it being 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, you have to get up at 5am, which isn't necessarily something those who have very full lives, full schedules and all those little to do lists floating around will find as easeful. So that gives us an anchor of something we might work towards. (laughs) Exactly. And I I would also um, include in the minutes that you can spend in a day, it includes time such as the time that you and I are having right now. We're fully present for each other. We have stepped out of the midline circuits of our default mode network where our narratives all about ourselves live, that narrative that says, you know, I should have done this and it goes to the past, or this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I fear in the future. When we're present for each other, we put our devices away, that's activating our side sensory circuits. And the more that we can repeat these states of presence, the more we build and that becomes a trait. And that in turn can become a new baseline way of being for ourselves. How incredible that what we're doing right now and what, you know, listeners might be doing with whatever activity they are showing up for or listening in for in this conversation, that that's actually rewiring our brain. And as you said, moving to a trait. So it's almost this, this change in our structure of ourselves and how we show up and react and are in the world. That's incredibly powerful stuff. Exactly. It is. It's transformative. And to think that we can choose to respond to something rather than react. What a beautiful way of phrasing it, to respond rather than react. And with that response, I wonder, could we introduce listeners to your three Ps of presence? Because the responsiveness there, I think, really connects beautifully. Great. So let's, um, let's go to the three P's. Um, they are purpose. And the next one is pivoting. And the last one is pacing. And there was quite a bit of competition for those three P's. But I didn't want more than three. I thought we needed to be very accessible and memorable. And I thought that everything uh, that I wanted to highlight could be contained within those three P's to bring mindfulness to life in our, in our daily work, in our daily life.
So purpose, there's a lot of research on purpose, just as there is on mindfulness. Uh, it's a free natural resource. It contributes to our well-being and our happiness. And I um, was so happy to come upon the work of Victor Strecker at the University of Michigan. He wrote a book called Life on Purpose. And so he spent his life looking into the benefits of happiness and eudaimonia and having purpose, something, a, a thing in our lives, a big thing that brings meaning that's based on our values. And it could be something that, and is often something that we can't finish in our lifetime. It won't be done. It's big. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. So, this is the kind of thing, however, most of us don't stop and think about because we're busy. The thing I so treasure about purpose is that it can get me through the hardest day. And it works like this. We all have days where we feel so defeated because there were so many challenges, both the expected and the unexpected. And of course, our brains go to the negative, what we didn't get done, not necessarily what we did get done. On those days, the discouraging ones, if we can go back to our purpose my purpose is, and for each role we play in our lives, and we're all playing multiple roles, if we can pull out the purpose and say, okay, today my, my son had a really hard time with his Zoom class and his math, but I'm still going to be the most resilient patient parent I can be, even though I got a little impatient. And we can also the concept of, you know, knowing that there will be ruptures between people, parent, child, you know, employee, employers, you know, people in relationship, but knowing we can repair it. This is such a, a valuable and um, an important concept for us. It's really nice that you've highlighted, actually, that these normal human experiences that sometimes don't show up in the social media reels of a, a rupture in relationship and the importance of repair, that not everything is these rose-colored glasses, that there can be difficult moments, but when we're showing up with purpose and intention, we're perhaps more guided in that repair, and it, it does feel like we're responding to then the situation at hand where maybe there was a little bit of a, a misstep or a misalignment or yeah, just a, an, an action that maybe didn't feel like it was as effective in the moment as, as we might've liked it to have been. Right, right. And I know, Caitlin, um, uh, your listeners may be global and we're all in different places, for example, when it comes to the pandemic. But one thing is true now is that we're all more on edge. So now more than ever, it's great to be able to remind ourselves that we can repair, that it's inevitable there will be ruptures, and that we can take control of something which happens to be our response to the things that come at us. That makes a lot of sense. So it's that being mindful and aware of these things that are coming at us, and that's where we get to have some action, some control, and some decision-making. With 
pivoting. How does that then link in? Because that requires us to be aware of everything that is coming at us and deciding, okay, what comes next? You know, we have these purposes. And again, you beautifully highlighted, we have different roles. So it might be different in different arenas of our lives. How does the pivoting link? Well, the pivoting over the um, course of the interviews became so important because I saw so many women either paralyzed by choices or not being able to move out of something or into something, even though, though somewhere within themselves, they knew they should. But mostly we humans don't like change. We don't like pivoting. We like what we have, and we also have um, neural loss aversion. So we don't want to move to something else unless we think it's twice as good as what we have, which can be a high bar sometimes, especially in a world of uncertainty. So a way to address the paralysis we might feel when it comes to making a change that would it would behoove us to make is to remember that we are pivoting or swiveling. We still have our, we're still grounded. We still have our work experience, our social skills, our friends, our colleagues, and they are there with us. We are simply making a pivot, if you will. And that has been able to make many people who are otherwise stuck and in inaction move ahead. It's really powerful. It's, um, I like that you used another P versus paralysis. Um, that, there you go. Linking it. Yeah, there's a theme. But um, I, I think the imagery, again, the imagery I think is really, really helpful here because when we do think of pivoting, whether it's in basketball or something, it, it doesn't require, you know, having both feet off the ground and losing that disconnect. We can still maintain, as you said, these different um, supports, connections in our lives and just reorientate a little bit and give some power when we look at how our brain is operating. And I think you beautifully articulate in so many arenas what's going on in our brain. So we understand the emotional reactions that we might be having to some of these things where our mind says, oh, uncertainty, I'm not going to do anything unless it's two times better, you know, which as you said, high stakes. What a nice way of kind of buying us a little bit more flexibility by kind of noticing our mind might tell us, oh no, not worth it. Uncertain and saying, what can I do to reorientate a little to get some momentum, some movement going? That's right. And I think also, um, Caitlin, another thing is when we do think about change, we tend to forget about what's working well in that moment. And I talk about the three W's in my book. It's such a a healthy place to start, even if you know you're going to make a change or there are challenging things to talk about. But to look at, okay, well, all right, now I've decided I need to seek a new job or a new career or a new city to live in, whatever those major life things are that we want to change. But look at what's working in your current environment or what is it you want to have in your next job that you have already. It's not all bad usually. So it's also helpful to uh, focus on that. 
And uh, as I said, our brains sometimes tend to, uh, I think it's Marty Seligman who talks about, he has three Ps also. And if something goes wrong, you think, oh, it's going to be permanent. And you might take it personally. And you might also think it's pervasive. And, And that's where pivoting is especially important because usually when we are making a change, it's just in one part of our lives. It's not that our whole life has to be changed. It's just one aspect of it that we're changing. That's really beautiful. That gives some some sense of how we can check things. And as you said, checking in with the resources, the supports that we have around us as we start to move forward. And I think with this, you know, the changing and kind of the movement we make in our lives, this actually ties in, I mean, it all ties in, doesn't it? But, but with pacing, you know, this idea that changing all domains at once and doing everything at once is a pretty difficult and overwhelming feat, perhaps might link back to that paralysis again, but can also leave us with, um, what's the lettering for it? FOMO. <laughs> this there you term go. that we right. hear a lot about now. Fear of missing out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what about uh, moon missing out on now? Oh, I love it. That's what we need to <laughs> it with. I will put that acronym in our show notes so we can make sure we keep track of yes, it. Yes, we need to promote moon. Moon. I don't want to miss yes. out on now. And how does moon help us with pacing? <laughs> yes. Well, it helps us because we... we first identify in pacing, what is it that is my priority right now? Uh, You gave a beautiful example, Caitlin, before we started recording. You know, you have one child, you have one on the way. So you were explaining how that would affect the scheduling in the podcast rollout. And so it's not that you can do or I or any of us can do it all, all at once. That's an experiment that we tried in the 70s and and the 80s. That was what, you know, I learned uh, as a new career woman that we now can do it all. But I think what we've come to understand now is that we can, but not all at once. And the one word for that concept is pacing. Makes a lot of sense. I like how you say we can do it all, but not all at once. That there's this caveat caveat and this gentleness to it. And, um, you know, I I believe in the book you refer to it as these chapters in our lives. If we kind of look at, you know, these these moments that we get to delight in before we turn the page. (laughs) That's right. And I like that before we turn the page. We, we need to be fully, again, back to moon. We don't want to miss it. I mean, um, there are things that come around in our lives, uh, whether it's an opportunity to take a great promotion or move to another city or, you know, have our second child or what, or have a child or have a special time with a parent who has a limited time on earth. Uh, we all have those time sensitive things. And, and the key really sometimes is recognizing that they're in front of us. 
Uh, I recall one interview and a very hard driving uh, executive. She had risen very quickly through the ranks of a major consulting firm. And um, her twin sister called her, uh, her twin sister was pregnant um, at the time and called her to say, you know, I think I'm going to have my baby tomorrow. And the interviewee said to her sister, are you sure? Because I got such a busy day tomorrow. And if you're not sure, and in hindsight, the woman whom I was interviewing said, I just, my perspective, I was so deep into my work. I didn't want to waste any time by setting aside that day. And it's just a matter of when we're in those situations, it is really hard to step back and say, wait a minute, what chapter is this? Let me not turn the page so fast here because we're not done with this yet. And ultimately this person left that job because it wasn't, this was just one example of many things that she looked at in her life and realized what she had been giving up, what present events she had missed. And that's making me um, bring to mind another story. I was um, an in-house lawyer and one of the, uh, one of my colleagues uh, told me the story of how she got married a year earlier, but she had no time to take her honeymoon. No time. And this is, I know, um, coming out of corporate litigation, this is not a shocking story. Um, there are so many like that uh, because it's almost, um, in, in my profession of corporate litigation, it's almost a badge of honor uh, for some not to take vacations, to have the... Um, whatever it is, whatever you call that perseverance and so-called dedication to not take time off. But again, that's one of the things I'm trying to make uh, really available to us in the book, the permission to set up our own expectations, our own values, our own pacing. I think that's really beautiful and that, it, that it's our own and permission and, and it links back to purpose, doesn't it? Because I, I imagine that when, and I did, you told that story in the book as well. So I know that the, um, the high corporate exec went to the birth, but that there would have been that realignment with her purpose in that moment, which is why it's so fulfilling. And I suppose that chance to reflect on what our purpose is, and it might be different perhaps in these different domains that we've talked about but that that can guide us into how we maybe express and live each chapter that while we might not be able to do everything, if we have purpose, there might be certain purpose-driven activities that are, are time-framed for where we're at at a specific point in time. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think to use the example of the woman whose um, sister is delivering imminently, you know, one of her purposes in terms of the family may be to be an available aunt, one who shows up. And her purpose with respect to her work may be to be a responsible leader in her company. And um, so we need to keep 
the different purposes in mind and at the same time figure out which one is the most time sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. And that presence and that mindfulness might be, you know, how I assume is vital in discerning that in the moment because it would be shifting and changing, wouldn't it? That's right. And, and I do talk about the, some of the myths of having purpose, you know, that, uh, for example, they're one and done. Well, no, our purposes might shift are depending on timing and priorities. Um, your role in, in work may take precedence over your role in other parts of your life, but it's, it's a, it's a shifting. It's not that we write our purpose down and then we don't have to look at it again. It guides us for 20 years. No, we very likely have to update it. And speaking of, I guess, like purpose and things that I, I think are really important to have conversation around right now, you highlighted that, you know, this past year, there's been such an unfolding and shift, a shift in, in America and globally that we've really seen the damage that we as a society, you know, very much a society that has social structure and, you know, embedded racism systemically is doing to, you know, our sisters, our brothers, you know, our, our, our communities. And anti-racism has really come to the forefront of awareness and conversation that needs to be had. You also mentioned it links with mindfulness. So I'm curious if we could maybe have a little bit of a conversation for listeners around this to support all of us in then engaging in anti-racist action as well as, you know, anti-sexist action, given that this is, you know, for a lot of us, something that no doubt connects to our sense of purpose and moving towards a, a better world, a more just world. Yeah, there's a there's again a lot in your question and your observation, but to peel away at it, I think uh, I think there is now more awareness than ever about the uh, role of racism in our respective societies worldwide, not just in the United States. Although, of course, the United States has a very unique history. Uh, that we we need to come to terms with. Uh, but in in my own case, I was a an exchange student at an historically black college in Louisiana called Grambling University. And growing up on a dairy farm in very white, very rural Wisconsin, I knew only one black family uh, before I went as a college student to this university for a semester. And so that was the first time I came to understand um, what, what, um, what role race can play. Uh, and uh, as I was checking into the dorm on the campus, the um, attendant asked the woman in front of me if she would mind having a white roommate, to which she said, yes, I mind and no thank you. And I think that was the first time I realized I, I just something I'm not in control of. It's how I am, how I look. But this is uh, very new to me to have this experience and not have the privilege, if you will, of not thinking about my race 
And ultimately she, I mean, she had said no so quickly because she had a very light skin and she was being teased on campus by some of the male students uh, who said she thought she was white or better than they were. So she thought the last thing she needs is a white roommate. And ultimately she said, you know what? No, I'll accept her. And of course that her was me right behind her. So we became roommates. But this was in the 70s, in the mid 70s. And I never really paid too much attention to race in America until the killing of George Floyd. And then it just, there was such an, an ex, a, a response. And I think ultimately my feeling of responsibility to learn more, learn more about our African-American history for one thing, but also to be more mindful. And I started to remember certain experiences. For example, I sat for more than 20 years on a board here in Santa Monica, which serves, um, uh, um, domestic violence uh, victims and runs shelters. And a large percent of our population is persons of color. And the board was comprised of 30 women, uh, 27 white, two Asian, and one African American. And it never occurred to me that we should recruit, have, and reflect the population we were serving at that time. So it's this kind of being aware, opening our eyes, being present with what is, and then taking action as best we can to, um, to be inclusive and to uh, take the steps we can so that we can um, make opportunities and, and um, safety and the things that have been taken for granted by those in power uh, available for all. It's really important, isn't it? How you said, you know, be aware. So the mindfulness noticing what's what's happening here, but it, it doesn't stop there. You know, we, we take action and that's important. And you said as best we can, you know, that, that action, whether imperfect or not, that that movement towards creating a society that that is supportive of all. And as you said, does reflect the populations that we're serving and ensures that everyone is considered is really, really important, I think. Exactly. And, and another aspect of this, Caitlin, is that we, um, we all carry bias. We have implicit bias. And the way our minds work, we want to make patterns and categories. And we don't usually stop to re-examine them. And so that's where the mindfulness can come, become very important to interrupt these pathways of bias. And I know that um, uh, trained as a lawyer, I have an obligation to maintain my continuing legal education. And within that body of requirements, there's a category called elimination of bias. And I attended a seminar that would fulfill that requirement. And I was so impressed with the speaker 
who started by saying that this entire category of elimination of bias is misnamed because we can never eliminate bias. We can come to recognize it, to change our relationship to these biases, but the human mind is always making these categories. So I really appreciated uh, that distinction uh, that I think is a good starting point uh, that we recognize that. that. That's powerful. I haven't heard a phrase like that before, but yeah, how, how wonderful if we can recognize that, okay, I have this bias, I have these racist tendencies, how do I notice them and keep them in check so that I'm engaging in that anti-racist action that is action-driven and movement-driven? Exactly. Exactly. And there are so many powerful um, books, many of which have been available to us, but only now the, the, the interest in them and they're getting printed more. Uh, but the work of Ibram Kendi, for example, um, you know, stamped from the beginning and how to be an anti-racist. I mean, these works are the uh, work of Wilkerson cast um, wonderful, thoughtful, well-researched resources for us. And I think listeners, grab, grab those resources. I'll put links to each of them in the show notes. But, but also that well-researched, I think, is really, really important as well, because this isn't just, and I think lived experience is really important. And I think certainly Ibram brings his, his lived experience throughout beautifully narrated. But understanding that this is a serious academic um, consideration as well, because I have heard some conversation around people accessing different resources that challenge what we, you know, understand to be this systemic racism that's happening that are not actually well-researched evidence-based books. And I think we need to be really mindful if we're involved in conversations with people who might be consuming this material that we can offer something that is well-established and has a really strong foundation in research like your book, Caroline, where it's really well-based in an understanding of the evidence of the research that we are doing in our academic institutions and then bringing it to life and offering us understanding as to how we then action this research rather than it just being, you know, sometimes um, a perspective that may or may not be helpful and, and may or not be leading us towards that just future. That's right, Caitlin. And I think especially at this time, um, we never thought we'd be debating uh, science or debating truth, but uh, we are. And so uh, I very much resonate with your striving to bring forward reliable sources that can help us be better educated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for bringing this conversation to the table as well. And I think, you know, it's really interesting, the language change too, because you highlighted, you know, the anti-racism was, was really important close to your heart. And I, I hope close to many of our hearts right now, but this language change, I think is really useful too, that it gives us an opportunity to deliberately action and 
really focus on how we, we increase our awareness of these imbalances. Like you said, the board, something that you hadn't noticed before. And I think all of us probably sitting back, giving ourselves a moment, will notice where there's a mispairing and, you know, a privilege to the fact that we haven't noticed some of these things. Exactly. And I, I think we can see, fortunately, around us, the, um, the actions being taken, uh, for example, to more represent populations that are being served and interventions in schools and helping students who've witnessed um, traumatic events or violence, you know, that the facilitators who come in be persons of color if that population in that school is largely persons of color, um, or if mindfulness teachers and in mindfulness centers that the students who come are able to see in front of them someone who can, they can imagine, you know, and more uh, readily resonate and align with uh, a person of color. And so there, there is a lot of progress being made now in, in not only that, but in trying to also um, educate whites about um, understanding better about race relations and being anti-racist. And I think that's an important thing. We're sitting here, we're both having this conversation as white women that we need to take the ownership to in educating ourselves and constantly seeking out for resources that are available to us and not assuming that someone else needs to come and do the work for us. Yes, that's right. And I think early on, um, uh, when we started to become more aware of racism and its impact, um, there was quite a bit written about the exhaustion fee, uh, the exhaustion of African Americans for having to uh, try to explain or educate us as whites who haven't taken the time to learn the history or become more aware of their reality. And so I, I do think that's an important piece. Yeah, yeah. And then in Australia, it's lots of conversations around reconciliation and the systemic racism that impacts our Indigenous population here. And I, I know that that's also a population that's affected in North America, being from Canada um, myself and knowing, you know, the history that exists in, in these nations. So I think this is an area for us to be aware of, to be mindful of, and really to connect with our purpose so that we are showing up even when it's uncomfortable. And, you know, I guess having the skills, the practices to be able to sit with that discomfort, which I almost might liken back to when there's rupture in relationship. I don't think it's as simple, but that the skill of being able to notice when something uncomfortable is coming up for us. And then, as you said, being able to respond effectively in a way that is in alignment with our heart is a beautiful offering that mindfulness, that practice can underpin. Exactly. And, and I'm glad you, you called out the, the discomfort aspect of this because it is uncomfortable and it takes energy. I mean, to, to learn and to come to terms with the history um, is, is um, 
is very powerful and uh, it, it goes to pacing as well. We really need to take in what we can in a given day or week and do what we can, but be also, you know, at the same time recognizing this is hard work and it is uncomfortable that goes with it. Um, there's no way around that. That's important that it's hard work and it's uncomfortable and it's still important. Just because it's hard work doesn't mean that it's not important, not valuable, or that that's necessarily a bad thing, that that's actually where some transformation can occur. With that, for listeners who are sitting here going, okay, I align with this. I align with the idea of bringing mindfulness in my life. Where could people start? You know, you mentioned just daily activities, kind of that stapling might be a starting point for cultivating mindfulness. Is there any, any other sort of strategies or, or skills that we could implement in this moment just to move towards creating this change or, you know, this alignment even? <laughs> There are so many resources. We could spend another hour on all of those. But um, I will reference the book because this is what you've done so beautifully as you've tied it all together. So listeners, please grab a copy of The Gift of Presence but just to start us off. But, but to answer your question, I always like to say it's like figuring out when you go to the gym or decide what your physical exercise will be. You kind of have to decide what mindfulness practices can you sustain? What's going to work for you? And there are plenty of apps, amazing apps. I, I use several of them myself. There's Insight Timer, there's Headspace, there's Calm, and there are many more. And you can very easily, you know, see, uh, and uh, they have uh, a variety of different teachers, many of them, and you can see what resonates with you, knowing that what works for you, or you seem to really like one day, it may not speak to you the next day. And that's okay. One day you might ride your bike, the next day you walk, the next day you take a day off. Although no days off in the meditation, please do something every day. <laughs> Get a scooter. I, yeah, I'm just yes, the scooter. I'm just making the point that uh, there are a lot. There's a lot we can do. Um, I'm actually in the midst right now. Sharon Salzberg, who is one of our mindfulness leaders in in the United States, uh, she has a 28 day challenge every February. And this is her 11th year of doing that. I'm sure you could jump on that now or next February. And she makes herself available in person twice during the month. And um, there are so many other uh, mindfulness teachers and there are wonderful conferences such as Wisdom 2.0, which uh, as some of your listeners may know, because uh, John Kabat-Zinn gave many weeks of um, mindfulness practices and mindfulness messages for us delivered to persons around the world. Uh, so these are all resources and persons also may want to find a teacher who can guide them. That is important, not just reading and, and I don't mean just reading, but all of these things support us in having a vital uh, and, and very much integrated mindfulness practice. 
Thank you. That That's a really beautiful offering because it, it gives us options, doesn't it? That if we're someone who has our phone on us, an app can work for us and we can be flexible around what's resonating. That if that momentum of a challenge or kind of doing, okay, just 28 days learning from one of the world's best teachers, if that's kind of inspiring, beautiful wisdom 2.0, of course. Um, and I'll be putting links in the show notes. And also, you know, you highlighted getting a teacher too, that for some of us that in person, and that opportunity to dialogue and be around someone who emanates that mindful awareness that I, I really feel has a, a visceral and energetic feel to it, that that can be really powerful as well. So there's lots of options for us to explore. And I, I always, I want to share with maybe yourself, but listeners as well, because you mentioned, you know, books are really wonderful too. And um, we are so lucky today. I mean, I remember listening to books on tape when I was road, road tripping growing up and you put the tape in the, the car, but we have Audible these days. And I actually listen to The Gift of Presence on Audible nightly while, because I pat my daughter's back until she falls asleep. So I slip in an earbud and listen and pat. And, you know, there's different ways of bringing learning and life into our, you know, necessarily flexible ways of, of meeting each day. So definitely grab all of these, these opportunities, resources to kind of think flexibility around how we learn and how we then practice. Um, Caitlin, thank you for sharing that story about the earbud and listening to the gift of presence. Um, as you may be aware, the book came out just as the pandemic came out last year. Uh, so by March 17th, the day of its release, they had just closed down restaurants in New York City, and we were all becoming very aware that the um, the um, COVID wasn't confined to Wuhan, China, that uh, it was very much moving through our country. So I, uh, when I hear that the, the work has made its way to Adelaide and is resonating with you, that, that means a lot. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's been my absolute pleasure to have this conversation, to share and to, to soak up more of your wisdom. And I know listeners will be resonating as well and, and soaking up this really accessible and well-established, you provide beautiful evidence, but really actionable, practical and lived experience through the women that you've interviewed. I think the book is just a wonderful offering. And, and as we kind of extended our conversation today, highlights that it's this base for them, we, how we go out and live our lives and show up even in uncomfortable times, but important times. So thank you so much, Caroline, for your time, for your wisdom today. Thank you very much. Well, I very much hope that you enjoyed that interview with Caroline Welsh and took as much away from it as I did. I truly recommend her book, The Gift of Presence. It certainly struck a chord with me and integrated, brought together a number of different theories, avenues, areas of research that are taking place within this mindfulness and meditation space in a way that was really practical accessible and compassionate so that we can find these ways of bringing mindfulness presence into our daily lives in a way that we can appreciate its gift 
rather than it feeling like a burden or something that's unattainable. Of course, connect with Caroline further at carolinewelsh.com, at Caroline Welsh Author on Facebook, on Instagram and LinkedIn, and at Caroline W. Author on Twitter. She's also at themindsightinstitute.com. And no doubt you picked up her innate curiosity and love of learning, sharing, and teaching. So we'll continue our journeys along together. I will connect with you all via earbuds in a fortnight. So please check back then for the next episode of Season 3 of Wisdom for Wellbeing. And of course, reach out on Instagram, on Facebook at Dr. Caitlin, or on Facebook as well at Wisdom for Wellbeing Pod. Wishing you and yours well. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.